you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. I, Paul, myself entreat you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, Let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves, as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labours of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Good morning, City on a Hill. How are we doing? Good to be with you today. Great day to be in church. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to have the chance to meet before. My name's Nick. Get the joy of being the lead pastor of this great church. Thanks for being with us. We just had half of our text today read out for us. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11. Uh, So if you're not there yet, you've still got time, get there with me. I'm going to pray. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to open this book and hear you speak. So Lord, we pray that you would speak now, that your word would be living and active amongst us Like a sword, would it pierce us for our good? And so help us to grow in love for you. Help us to grow in hatred of our own half-heartedness. Help us see Jesus as big and as beautiful as he really is. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. 
We are diving back in to this Jars of Clay series, 2 Corinthians today. Uh, But we dive in to a point where there is this decisive shift in Paul's strategy for how he is approaching this church. To this point, it's been all warmth. And yet now he's going to take a turn to bring to the fore what has been behind the scenes all along. If you have been with us for any point of time during the series, you'll know that there's been a couple of looming questions over this book. And one is about Paul himself. Could the church trust him? Was Paul legit? Was God really at work through this guy, as unimpressive as he is? And at the same time, there's been another looming question over the whole interaction between Paul and the church, or even the city there in Corinth since 1 Corinthians. To illustrate that, uh, maybe I can tell you a little about my own experience in, in different churches, and some of you who have been in the church world for, for a time might be able to resonate. But several years ago, uh, when I was in the ordination track, the, the process to get ordained in the Anglican church, uh, as they thought about, Nick, how are we going to get you to become an Anglican minister? They decided that I wasn't sufficiently Anglican. And the reason that I wasn't sufficiently Anglican was uh, it wasn't spoken, but it was kind of unsaid, was, was that I'd spent too much time at City on a Hill. You see, in the church circle, in the Anglican world, there's Diet Coke, and City on a Hill is a little bit considered Diet Anglican. Like, like it's, it's, not, it's not quite there. At least it was there uh, like that for a time. So I thought, Nick, you know, we're going to make you more Anglican before you become an Anglican priest. And so part of that was that I had to wear a dress. You know, there's, there's a lot going on here. I had to, had to, had to, let's call it a robe. I had to wear a robe. And so they, they sent me just for a time uh, to, to spend uh, a number of weeks helping out at the, the uh, very liturgical high church, high up the candlestick service with uh, some elderly folk here in uh, Mount Waverley. Or, or, yeah, Mount Waverley. And um, so I went, I went, went along to, to that service and I, and I donned the dress and uh, was able to help assist the, the priests there in uh, passing around the common cup and in going through the very kind of liturgical midweek service. Uh, And it was actually, in hindsight, a a real blessing to me. And one of the reasons it was a blessing to me was that you often kind of pitch these people who are kind of, kind of addicted to formality and tradition. They've they've sold out. They're they're not about the gospel. They're only about tradition. What I saw was that these beautiful, gospel-loving, elderly folk. Actually, it's that they see God is at work through the formality. God is at work through the tradition. God is at work in, in making sure. We, we get communion, the Eucharist. We, we get that right. And so they had a particular answer to where do we find God most at work in the world? And for them, it was mainly in making sure communion was done right. Now, that was a far cry from uh, where I had been you know, some 15 years ago. I used to go to a Pentecostal church, a Pentecostal mega church. Uh, and they have a very different answer to, to where is God most of the Because when I went to that Pentecostal church, I didn't don a, a dress or, or a robe, but I donned skinny jeans. I actually haven't taken them off uh, <laughs> since then. And instead of passing around the, the common cup, one thing that I became really skilled at at that time was, was actually catching people. And some of you who have been in these kind of circles will, will understand this, but you know, there, there's a particular liturgy in a Pentecostal church, and, and part of that is that after a very emotive, expressive sermon, there's a call for people to come down the front, and people flock down the front to uh, be, be touched or sometimes pushed uh, by the, the preacher, and, and, and they fall back, they fall over. And, and I and some of my mates, uh, the young men in the church, we were kind of looked at at that time by the pastor as, hey, you're, you're the muscle. You need, you need to come and, and catch 
these people who are flown over. So I became very good at catching people in that moment. And you'd kind of catch them. And, and there was even a trick to it when there were too many people on the ground already that you'd kind of catch them. And mid-fall, you'd have to twist them to find a place on the ground to lie. And then you'd kind of give the signal and someone would run over with a modesty blanket and put it over the person who was lying on the ground. But again, it isn't. It's, it's another answer to the same question. Where is God at work? These people aren't necessarily sold out to come some kind of pagan, idolatrous uh, kind of view of emotionalism or or physical expression. No, it's actually they genuinely love the Lord and believe that through these things, God is at work in the world, that this is how we connect with God, through having emotive, having expressive experiences before him. And so it's that looming question, what is true spirituality? What, what, What is it or where is it that God is at work in the world? How can we have those moments of ministry, those moments of connecting with God? Where can we be sure that God is in this? God is at work. And it's that looming question that, that has been over Paul's whole encounter with the church there in Corinth. What does true spirituality look like? And so in today's chapters, these two themes get blended together. Paul's leadership, is it legit? And is it his style of leadership through which God is at work? How can we be sure God is at work through this guy? And so Paul's commentary today is going to center around, well, what what do real gospel leaders look like? What does Christian leadership look like? And so that is worth thinking about as Christians, because whether it's a city on a hill or, God willing, you are kind of led somewhere else, maybe moving back to America. As Christians, we're always going to be under people we should be looking up to and learning from. Leaders. God has given to the church leaders. That's how he's set this thing up. And so all of us need to have some kind of sense of, well, actually, what are the kind of people we should be looking up to? Who are or what should Christian leaders look like? There's another reason why today is relevant, and that's because I want you to be thinking about, why, why not you? Why, why aren't you leading in the church? And some of you actually need to think about doing that in a full-time capacity in your life. See, the way that Jesus called his first disciples puts the onus on all of us to consider perhaps we might be called in the same way. Because the way Jesus called his first disciples was he just went around to very ordinary men and he said, or he called them out in very ordinary ways and, and they dropped the fishing nets or they dropped the, the tax collection And they followed him with their lives. They dropped what gave them income. They dropped what they felt really confident about. They felt like they were experts at. And they moved in to ministry, to following Jesus. And some of you are here and you should drop the accounting. You should drop the engineering. You should drop the the financial services. And it might be that you need to follow Jesus by becoming a Christian leader full-time. Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. The one barrier that Jesus identifies to revival breaking out in the world is that we need more laborers. We need more leaders. We need more people serving him. Now, of course, I should also say some of you should keep doing the accounting, keep doing the engineering, keep doing the financial service and follow Jesus while you do it because we need Christians in those spaces. We need Christians building culture, subduing the earth, as we're all called to there in Genesis chapter 1. 
But you'll never know if you have truly submitted your life to Jesus, if you don't hold your career loosely enough that you are willing to give it away upon prayer, consideration, that Jesus might actually be calling you to become one of those laborers and step in to Christian church leadership. And so today we're going to explore what godly leadership looks like so that we might be led and we might lead God's people well. As I said, Paul is making a shift here from how he has previously written to the church. And it's such a big shift that you should know that some scholars, some people think that we're now entering 3 Corinthians, as if chapter 10, 11, 12, 13 is a whole new letter and that there's a break and over time somehow this just got fused in to chapters 1 to 9 to become 2 Corinthians. Now I think they're wrong, but it is kind of highlights the fact that there is a shift here. His tone seems to change. Paul now starts to talk to them very bluntly. He descends to their level. Now, we often have to do this as parents. Big shout out to the, the parents in the room. You guys are the real MVPs. Uh, I know firsthand, you know, bringing up children is particularly difficult. They can be demanding. They can be stubborn. If they are a coombs kid, they can be particularly whingy. And so I know as parents, you've got to get particularly creative with how to motivate your kids out of that. And for us, that often happens at the dinner table, how to motivate your children to eat their dinner. All is fair in love and war and in motivating your children to eat their dinner. You've got to do what you've got to do. And I know when my kids, they, they start with the whinginess and it's always about something ridiculous. They wanted fish tacos and they got spaghetti bolognese. And so you start with patience. And you think, this isn't going to last long, and your patience doesn't last long. And so two minutes later, you're out of patience. But you're still there trying to motivate them. So then you move into the argument with them. A bit of logic. Hey, if you don't eat your dinner, you won't have the energy to play tomorrow. So you've got to eat your dinner. And then you kind of go through the... But at least my kids, they've always got good answers back. It always kind of makes sense why they won't currently eat their dinner. And so then you've got to kind of descend even further and start threatening things. Like... <laughs> Like, if you don't eat your dinner, you're going to go to the laundry. <laughs> At least that's what used to happen to me. And then I'd eat the ice cream in the laundry because it was there in the freezer. But my parents hadn't caught on. Now, even those threats sometimes have no effect on Axel or Arya's will to eat their dinner. And so at that point, you've got to descend even further. And so you look, you look to your wife. And, you know, nothing needs to be said other than this unspoken, are we going to go? Are we going to descend to those depths? And so for us, the depths beyond patience and, and logic uh, are what we might call, now I know some of you are far more godly than me, but we might call this the, the compassion child comparison strategy. <laughs> now, now, now we have a couple of compassion children on our, on our fridge. And so, so I told you, some of you are a lot more godly than me. You can point at, their, their, you can point at them and you can say, you know, there are kids around the world who are going without food. And it's as if they would think like, oh gosh, I better eat all my dinner because of that. <laughs> and so you, you do that and sometimes it just, just doesn't work. You know, you know, at least one time, Jules might get angry at me for sharing this, but at least one time in the past, it got beyond just the compassion child comparison strategy. It was like, get the iPad. We got the iPad. We YouTubed. We're, looking, we're watching World Vision videos to try to convince our children to eat their dinner. And still, it's not working. Sometimes there, there are even depths below this <laughs> that I have had to 
explore. Because when you show them a video about, it's like a kid, you know, it tears your heart out sharing a bowl with a stray dog. And if you're a Coombs kid, they, they think, why don't we have a dog? <laughs> why don't we? Have, how do these kids get it? We're not getting a dog. But, but there are depths beyond this. And the next strategy is if my kids are whinging and crying, and it's always over something meaningless, I join them in the crying. This is the depths of the depths strategy. I scrunch up my face. I start wailing. I say, Mommy, call the ambulance. <laughs> and hopefully, if timed correctly, this can suck the kids out of the depths that they have gotten themselves to, and a smile breaks out. And they start to laugh because they see, actually, what I'm doing is ridiculous. But you've got to time it well, because if you time it poorly, then I can't help you because you have signed them up to a lifetime of trauma counselling, if you get that wrong, <laughs> if you shame them that badly. And I say all that because Paul has a very similar spiritual parenting strategy to me. He gets down into the depths of how the Corinthians have been behaving. He descends to their level, or at least to the level of these super apostles who are there. And so he starts to boast about stuff. Even though he's, at the same time as boasting, going to show how shamed he is, how embarrassed he is to be getting down into their level and boasting, he does it to point out just how ridiculous they've been, just how foolish they look. And so we're going to see that today and next week as well. Paul is happy to look a little foolish for the sake of winning them back to what true gospel ministry looks like. So let's finally get there, and let's first talk about the heart of leadership. The heart of leadership, Paul is going to tell us, is that it's about gentleness and not glory. Let me read the first couple of verses. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you, that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, Paul's that same loving pastor that he has always been. He, he compels, he's, he's lovingly entreating, he says, the Corinthians, begging them. He doesn't want to have to come to them harshly or, or strongly. But there are people amongst them who are saying that this Paul guy, this guy's not really led by the Spirit. He's walking according to the flesh. And so notice how Paul begs them, how Paul compels them, how Paul entreats them. He does by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul famously tells Timothy elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. If you are a Christian, let alone a Christian leader, our call is to imitate Jesus. Imitate Jesus in what he thought, his teaching, his doctrine, but also imitate Jesus in his way of life. Unfortunately, though, the, the church in Corinth was in the grip of Corinthian culture, and Corinthian culture did not value gentleness. No, they exalted personal glory. There was, this was an Instagram world before Instagram, a world where you, you need to put yourself out there to try to accrue the likes and the cheers and the clout and the reputation. You needed to win it by being publicly and, and vocally self-aggrandizing. 
And so leadership would be won by putting yourself forward in Corinth. And so it's countercultural, even then as it is even now, to follow Jesus in his gentleness. That, that the one who, who very famously said in, in Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Jesus tells us about his heart, he tells us it's gentle and lowly. And this is really at the heart of the gospel. This is, this is why we're all here. This is why we have, have come to Jesus. Because Jesus has gently brought us to himself. In his great book, by the same words, Gentle and Lowly, by, by Dane Ortland, he says, If you are in Christ, you have a friend who, in your sorrow, will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. It's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus loves sinners. Jesus loves sinners. He moves toward sinners. He gives grace to sinners. He's gentle and lowly to anyone suffering in their own sin. And when you read the, the Gospels, you notice that, that Jesus was often scolded, scoffed at for, for who he hung around with, for hanging around with sinners and tax collectors. But what's particularly remarkable is that we, we notice that Jesus never responds back trying to clear or protect his reputation, does he? Never hits back with, oh, I, I was just there for dinner. You know, oh, oh they're actually, actually not that bad. No, Jesus in his gentleness, he, he welcomes sinners and he hitches his own reputation on his gentleness and love for sinners never harsh never overbearing jesus was gentle and the pharisees and the religious elites of the time were glory seeking jesus said to them how can you believe in me you're so full of receiving glory from one another that if we seek glory it makes a hard heart toward jesus where we find gentleness. And even whenever Jesus seemed not gentle, like some scenes might come to our mind where he's tying a cords together to make a whip or he's rounding out and, and throwing over tables in the temple. Or even Paul here, as he starts to get a little bit more blunt and direct with the church, one thing, hey, you're entreating by gentleness but not feeling very gentle here, Paul. We, we actually know that no, it's just a, a temporary godly ferocity against what's coming against God's people. That he's gently moved in to this tone and posture and temperature because he loves the people so much. And it's that gentleness that should mark all of us who have encountered Jesus. A gentleness like Jesus. It is one of the fruit of the Spirit, after all. And Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that it's this kind of gentleness that they should actually be looking to from their leaders. Paul explicitly puts it in some of the qualifications in other books of the Bible, again, to Timothy, that a pastor need be not violent, but rather gentle. He tells him elsewhere, flee youthful passions and pursue godliness, faith, love, and gentleness. And so the very thing that the super apostles were using to undermine Paul's credibility Paul leans into and says, gentleness. He wants to be gentle among them and toward them.
Now, we need that in our own day. Because if we pull out our phones right now and flick through our social media channels, apps, and if we're honest, that probably is the main way that we are formed and discipled in our world today, isn't it? The main source of content shaping us. We would not see a lot of gentleness. We need to consider the tone and the temperature of people that we look up to and people that we follow. And in a political age like ours, that's run on personalities and panache. We're so prone to follow the one who can completely destroy the other, prone to, to follow the one who can impressively lob grenades over the political aisle, prone to follow those who are particularly charismatic and impressive, and yet it always seems to come with a tinge of sarcasm, verbal violence, and not gentleness. Tone and temperature of Christ's leaders must be marked by gentleness. A couple of weeks ago, I was struck at the, the passing of, of Tim Keller, a leader who I've looked up to and learned from all of my adult life on reflection. And his final recorded public words to the world and to his church in particular came from uh, Jeremiah 45, verse 5. It said, Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. Do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. That's a perfect way to go out, especially from a man who embodied it. But the Corinthians were prone to value the seeking of great things. Let's, let's do that all the more. Prone to look to the leaders who, who got big results and you kind of minimize the character. And we often attempted to do that today with, with people who perhaps morally fall that we look up to. Oh, they've done so much good. They're getting the results. And yet what really matters is character, and a character of gentleness. And so, maybe we should flip this back on ourselves. How is your gentleness? How is your gentleness? If others couldn't pick that fruit from the tree of your character, could it be that it's because you're so full of the hunger for glory that it's getting in the way of the pursuit of what really matters? of looking, feeling like Jesus. See, Jesus wants to stretch us in every way possible. And so this isn't a, a dichotomy here. Jesus wants us to become more gentle even as we step up to be leaders because they're not mutually exclusive. We need gentle leaders. So Paul moves on from the heart of leadership to the goal of leadership. Jumping down to, to verse 7 of chapter 10, he says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much for our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of these who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves to one another, they are without understanding. So Paul started by begging them, entreating them, compelling them in the spirit of the gentleness of Christ. God, Paul wants them to, to, to open their eyes, to really just, just take a step back, Corinthians, and just, just, just weigh up what is actually going on here. On, on the one side, you have these what Paul calls super apostles, these, these new leaders who have flown into town in their private jets, 
who have stepped out of those jets into the church, commending themselves as how impressive they are in leading, how worthwhile it will be for this church to, to follow them. These are the guys who are, who are most popular on YouTube. They wear the flashy clothes. They have a following. But that's all they have. That, that, that's just it. Their credentials are that their friends tell other people how good they are. It's like a closed loop system, giving references for one another. And on the other side, you have Paul. Paul, who, who walked into Corinth where there was, the gospel had never been there before. And he started preaching Jesus. And he lived like Jesus. And he journeyed with the church as they came out of darkness and into light, in joy and in sorrow, in persecution, in comfort, in consolation. The one who taught them everything that they know about God and who he is who's been there in the thick and the thin of life changes that they've experienced as they've come to Jesus. The one who's been commissioned by Jesus, the one whose letter of commendation is the life change that has happened amongst this church. And Paul says, open your eyes. Look at the difference. Look at what is before you. And Paul even says that what he sees as his role as leader, the reason that Christ sent him to Corinth to be a leader amongst these people. He says, for building you up and not for destroying you. And that, that is the goal of leadership. Whereas these super apostles were boasting, Paul was building them up. That is the goal of Christian leadership. All Paul's ever done, whether positive encouragement, whether difficult rebuke, it's been to build up the people. It's been to build up the church. In chapter 11, he will go on to say that his goal was to betroth the church to Christ, to marry them to Jesus. And that's the calling on Christian leaders, to build others up in Jesus. Bit of a history lesson. In the 18th century in North America, there was this significant, drawn-out, lengthy move of God that became known as the, the Great Awakening. And in that time, there were people who you may have heard of before, people like George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, who, who went around traveling and preaching to, to tens of thousands of people with no microphones, just shouting at them. And after shouting at them for an hour, thousands of them would flock and, and give their life to Jesus and, and want to do what they could to convert to Jesus. And so there was this, this spiritual hunger that people identified as this is not normal. Something is, is going on here. And it was so kind of of a high spiritual temperature, that one particular pastor, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, he preached this famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Ironically, it was full of God's mercy. And it was about how you and I, we have a wickedness that weighs us down like lead. Our sin weighs us down like lead. And so much so that should God let us go, we also have a righteousness that would be no more influential to keep us up than a spider web would be in catching a falling rock. In other words, we have a righteousness that can't help at all. We need Jesus. We need God's mercy. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear us one moment, he said. And people heard this and they shrieked and they fell over and they ran to the front of the church to become Christians. He could, he could preach about being in the hands of an angry, and hundreds of people would turn to put their trust in Jesus and seek mercy in Jesus. And so that kind of response, he, he stepped back and thought, man, this, this is not normal. Something, something's going on here. It's led him to investigate, well, what is the mark of 
a true move of God. What does revival actually look like? He, read, he wrote this book called Religious Affections. And so he came up with a few signs of how can we know that it's legit? How can we know this is real? And one of the, the signs that he recognized that if, was if, truly, if someone is truly met with God, then they're attended with a, a lamb-like or, or dove-like spirit and temper of Jesus Christ. We've seen already gentleness. Another is that, that people have a, a change of nature, their character starts to change. It's not just about in the moment, the emotional stuff. It's about who they actually become. Start to have a soft heart, a Christian tenderness. Another thing you notice was that people start to want to exercise the fruit of the Spirit, to to bear fruit in in, in actually practicing a life like Christ. And so what Paul's talking about in here in 2 Corinthians, we actually have the data to look at over 2,000 years of what does someone look like? What does a leader look like? when they've truly encountered Jesus. We saw it a couple of weeks ago that true Christians, just like Paul, start to value God's people, love the church. True leaders, therefore, like Paul, want to start building up the church. And so a true work of God, therefore, actually changes people. If it's a true work of God, the church is built up. The church is encouraged in a sustainable way. We mature. And that is the goal of why God has sent leaders to the church. He tells us in Ephesians for building up the body until we all reach maturity. And so that means that good leadership is often very boring. The pastors you want are boring, solid, faithful, character types, resilient, humble. But it's all a little boring, isn't it? That's what, that's what it was for this church in Corinth. These, these flashy super apostles were telling you, Paul, he is boring. And yet boring are going to keep people and fan into flame the taste buds they have for Jesus that they might get to heaven in one piece. Boring will feed you week in and week out so that over time you grow in spiritual maturity and strength. Boring will keep you planted in a place for decades so you can actually make a difference in a community. Boring might just help grow your character, see you filled with the Holy Spirit so that you might be able to say no to temptation and say yes to Jesus again and again and again. Paul was boring to the Corinthians. See, the goal of Christian leadership is to build up the church, not to hit certain metrics, not to whip up a crowd, not to get a book deal on the side, but to build up the church. It's not sexy, but it is necessary. And so for all of us, the question is, is, do we have that same conviction? Do we want to be a part of of building up the church? But that's why God has called us to be together, that all of us might reach mature manhood, he says, together. And finally, there's a theme that that comes up in, in chapters 10 and 11 as Paul compares himself to these other Leaders, And he, he brings up the, the danger of leadership. The danger of leadership is that actually leaders might start serving the serpent instead of the son. I skipped over a little bit at the start of chapter 10, uh, a famous couple of verses that we often take out of context. He said, he reminded them that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the power, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Often we, we read that, don't we? And we think, hey, that's about my personal private battles. 
with lust, with greed, with temptation. My thought, life. God wants to take it captive. And it's true that he does. And yet in context, this is about the battle that was going on in Corinth. And Paul is setting it up as a battle of good versus evil, of heaven versus strongholds, God versus Satan. He even goes on to say in chapter 11, verse 3, that what is happening in Corinth is akin to what happened in the Garden of Eden. He says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so these people are being led away by Jesus. Just as the snake, the serpent in the garden, led Adam and Eve away from God's word, so too is the church in Corinth being led away. Gets to the point where Paul just, just says what he's thinking. Halfway through chapter 11 in verse 12. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You see, Jesus has already done all the work required for you and me to be right with God. Jesus has lived our perfect life. Jesus has died our sacrificial death. Jesus has risen again to new life. And so Jesus has defeated, defanged, shamed Satan, his servants, their works and effects. And yet because of that, we're told that the devil now prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's trying to devour the church. Just as the goal is to build up the body of Christ, the goal of Satan now is to tear it down, to divide it. Keep us wailing and drinking the milk. One of his strategies, we're told here, is to actually send leaders into the church who will undermine God's work and lead people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. And so it could be that even now that, that, that leaders are, are in great positions of authority and yet actually serving the serpent instead of serving Christ himself. And so don't let the, the ho-hum, seemingly mundane nature of what we're doing here at church fool you. We are involved in a real spiritual battle. A battle which, praise God, we actually already know the score. We, we know who has already won because it happened on the cross. It happened in history 2,000 years ago. And yet, a battle, all the same, that, that is real and that seeks to take us out. The Apostle John wrote uh, the book of First John and then he tells us all to test the spirits. To not just believe everyone, not just to take everyone at, at face value, certainly not to distrust in a blanket way, but rather to be discerning that there are false prophets among us and that the way we know that the Spirit of God is genuine among us and, and, and at work is if those prophets confess that Jesus Christ has come. Now, of course, we might do that on a statement of faith on our website. We might give a golf clap or a, uh, kind of a muted cheer, a head nod to Jesus. But true spirituality, true Christian leadership doesn't just acknowledge Jesus but centers 
Jesus. And so you can always tell, is God in this if Jesus is the hero? Jesus must be the hero. Jesus must be at the center. He is the true leader. He is the one we imitate. He is the one we follow. He's the one we glory in and delight in. He's the one we want to become like because he became like us in the flesh to live, die, and rise again. And that is very important for all of us to know it. Whether you've been in the church for, for one week or for decades, the onus is on us to keep Jesus at the center of our church. Paul says this in another writing, another letter to Timothy, just before he's about to have his head chopped off for the sake of Jesus. Paul leaves his best wisdom in to Timothy. And he tells him, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so what does Satan use to send false teachers to the church? Who is it that accumulates the false teachers? Who gives the teachers a following? Paul says, it's you. The people accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passion. This is all on us. The value of a ministry is how much we make of Jesus. The strength of a church is how much we make of Jesus. The goal of a leader is to make much of Jesus. The heart of a leader is to pursue the gentleness and the character of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. True spirituality, where we know God is at work, is where we're being helped to live like Jesus, where we're being helped to look to Jesus, to depend upon the person and work of Jesus to glory in Jesus. And so that's all you You need to help me, help us keep this church all about Jesus. There'll be temptations to to stray, start preaching a a, a different Jesus under the same name. But we need to keep Jesus at the center because Jesus is worthy of being at the center of our lives. Jesus is worthy of being at the center of our church. We need a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. Jesus conquered death. Jesus offers all of us eternal life. He will never leave us nor forsake us, but will always be to us in our suffering, in our sin, gentle and lowly. And so let me encourage you to help us keep our church all about Jesus. Help us offer to this world the real Jesus. And perhaps God is tugging at your heart even today calling you up and in to be one of the leaders in our church who might help us make sure that we embody the spirit and the heart and the goal of Christ. Let's pray together. Let's sing and then we'll have some baptisms. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you have created, set up and written the story of what you've done in the world throughout history is to push Jesus forward into the world, to center Jesus. We thank you that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we pray that that would happen today. We pray that that would happen sooner rather than later. And Lord, it starts with us. And so fill us by your Holy Spirit that whatever our self-perceived level of influence amongst our church here, you would help us 
help the church be built up by focusing on Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his death, for his resurrection. Lord, may we never move beyond him to another gospel, to another Jesus. May we not deceive ourselves by drinking of a a watered-down Jesus. May we not turn from his heart and become a people who are hard-hearted and and pit Jesus against the world, but rather follow him in giving of ourselves and being gentle and lowly toward one another and in bidding the world to come and consider the real Jesus. And so help us be a people who lead like Jesus and follow you wherever it is that you might take us with our hearts wholehearted centered upon him. Distractions are on either side, Lord. It is a a narrow path. Keep us from veering into lawlessness. Keep us from veering into legalism. Help us pursue Jesus each and every day. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Only you can keep our hearts upon you. And so give us that gift, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.